I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. This morning we saw that if Israel was going to utilize the tabernacle properly, they needed to, to, uh, to put things together God's way. That is, they needed to, to come up with the materials and the furnishings of the tabernacle according to how God had instructed them. And most importantly, as a nation, they would need to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. If the tabernacle was going to be used at all, and if it was going to be used properly, then they needed to observe the Sabbath. And that required them to prioritize in their lives in order to give God the attention that is due to Him. And the same thing is true in our day. If we're going to give God the the attention that is due to Him, then we must prioritize. We must give God first place. Sadly, I think that even among professing Christians that we too often treat following Christ like a hobby. What is a hobby? Well, a hobby is something that we enjoy to do with our spare time. It does have a purpose and it does bring with it some satisfaction, but if we don't have time to get around to our hobby, life is not going to end. Right? It's not going to be the end of the world. In most cases, it doesn't affect us a whole lot if we can't get to our hobby. It's kind of an add-on to life, not one of the necessities of life. In fact, there will be times in our lives where tragedy hits or some major thing is going on in our life that we don't have time for our hobby. And that's okay. We can still go on existing fine without it. I think we too often are quick to treat following Christ like that. That following Christ is enjoyable, of course, or we wouldn't do it. And it brings a level of satisfaction. But if I get to it, I get to it. It's not priority number one in life. And if I don't get to it, I don't get to it. But what we're going to see tonight is that following Christ is urgent. And that it requires our entire focus. That following Christ must be our first priority. It must be our first priority. That doesn't mean that everything else in life is unimportant or unnecessary. But what it does mean is that Christ will not stand to take second place in our life. He will not allow us to turn following Him into a hobby. Our passage begins in verse 46 of Luke chapter 9. So let me begin reading there. This is the Word of God. An argument started among them, the disciples, as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him, because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. 
When the days were approaching for His ascension, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers out ahead of Him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Him. But they did not receive Him because He was traveling toward Jerusalem. When His disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do You want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But He turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No, uh, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I think the point of these series of events in this passage that we're going to look at tonight is that following Christ must be first priority. Following Christ, must be, following Christ must be first priority. We see this in several ways. Number one, following Christ requires humility. Following Christ requires humility, verses 46 through 48. The argument here in these verses follows the news from Jesus the second time in verse 44 that He would suffer and die. Look at verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears, speaking to the disciples, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus is talking about the fact that, yes, He is the Messiah. Peter had announced that, had confessed that on behalf of the other disciples. And Jesus said, you say rightly, and I'm going to die. He says it the first time, and now He says it the second time, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's saying, I'm going to glory. But the pathway to glory for me is through suffering. And what are the disciples doing here in verses 46 to 48? They're thinking not about the suffering that's about to come to them, but they're thinking about their status in the kingdom. They're thinking about the glory part of it. That's why they say here in verse 46, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. When it comes to the kingdom, who is the greatest of your followers, Jesus? And they actually weren't talking to Jesus. Jesus had actually read their mind according to verse 47. But they were concerned about their status. And that's what our world is all about as well. People are so consumed with climbing the corporate ladder and getting a position of power and being perceived as wealthy and respectable. And the disciples have the same wavelength as our culture. It is, how great would it be if we were the integral leaders, the the supreme leaders in the empire that Jesus establishes. Because after all, we're Jews and we're His close followers. But Jesus wants to make clear to the disciples that this is not the kind of people that He's seeking. He's seeking people who recognize how they gained the kingdom. And that's why he, He uses this example of a child here in verses 47 and 48. So they're arguing, verse 46, probably discussing this secretly, but Jesus knows what they're thinking, what they're saying. And that's why it says in verse 47, but Jesus 
knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. Because he knows what they're fighting over, he uses an object lesson to make a point. And he brings the child close to him in verse 48. And he's going to make a statement here. In our society, children are, are much more prominent than children in the ancient Near East during this time. Children in our society are often worshipped. Now, that's not the case in every, in every uh, situation, but children are often worshipped by their parents because parents are trying to live their lives, uh, we say, vicariously or substitutionarily through their children. Like, I couldn't have this kind of upbringing, so I want you to do this. I want you to be good at sports. I want you to be good at music. I want you to have a, a wealthy upbringing. I want you to be comfortable. And so we, we live through our child, children's lives and we take them all over creation trying to, to accomplish everything that we wanted for when we were a, ch- a child, even though we had little control over that. And so they become an object of our worship in many cases. But in the ancient Near East at this time, a child was actually someone who was kind of put to the background. He was of no use to society until he became of age, really. Until he became about 13 years old. Then he could start learning some significant truths uh, in this context about God. He could could actually do some uh, legitimate work. But until then, he was of no use to the society. And so Jesus brings this child along side of him and says, see this one who, as far as status is concerned, he has very little, if any, status in society. He brings him along. And notice what he says to him, uh, to them in verse 48. He says, whoever receives this child, this one of no status, in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Jesus essentially says that this child, although an outcast in society, is valued by me because he is made in the image of God and therefore God cares about him. See, they're concerned with themselves in relationship to Jesus. That is, as far as their position and what they can get from being close to Jesus. But Jesus was telling them that the true test of whether they're related to him was expressed in how they looked at the outcasts of society. How they looked at children. It's not that they needed to have a natural inclination toward children. You know, some people are just really good with children by nature. It's not that That's not the point. I think Jesus was saying here, you need to be kind to the lowly as represented by these children, these outcasts. He was teaching them something different about greatness than what society believed. And that's why this statement that Jesus is making is actually an answer to what their problem was, right? They were trying to see who was the greatest, and Jesus is saying, you want to see what greatness is for me? It is how you care for people who, who have very little clout in society. That greatness in the eyes of God is a person who doesn't have to be seen as great in front of other people, but rather it's someone who is willing to serve the lowly. You come and receive a child who is not accepted by society as a whole. You're accepting someone who is lowly, 
And in, in so doing, you are serving the lowly. And when you serve the lowly, you serve me. And that's why I say following Christ requires humility. As Christians, we of all people should be most humble. Why do you think that is? Why should we as Christians of all people be most humble? Right? Because we recognize how we got to where we are. We recognize that we brought nothing into the world and we can carry nothing out. We also recognize when it comes to salvation that we did nothing to earn our standing before God. That it was all of God that, that we were saved. It was by grace that we were saved. And so we can't stand on our pedestal of self-righteousness as Christians. And that's why I say, of all people, we should be most humble. And that is exactly where, where Jesus wants our minds to be. And the point that He's making here in verse 48 is that you will not honor those of little status unless you recall that that's how God accepted you. That God accepted you as a person of no status before Him. And because you recognize that, you're willing to reach out to someone else of no status. You want to follow Christ, it requires humility. Number two, following Christ requires focused ministry. It requires focused ministry, not envy. Verses 49 through 50. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he did not follow along with us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Now we might look at this next recorded event and think. This is a new story. This has no connection to what Jesus was just talking about. Right? Verse 46 to 48, they're talking about greatness, and Jesus is talking about serving the lowly, and then John moves on to something else. But notice verse 49, that in response to what Jesus had just said about who God will accept, John is answering. Notice, John answered to what Jesus had just said, and said... Master, we saw someone casting out demons. So I think this is another expression of the power struggle that we saw in verse 46 that is going on in the lives of disciples. And here is expressed by one of the three elite disciples, John. And it seems that what is driving John's claim is not a passion for God's mission to be carried out, but rather envy. Again, I think this is a power struggle issue that, that John is thinking, okay, which of us, all the disciples are thinking, which of us is going to be the greatest? Who's going to get the right hand, as is stated in other places? And now John's saying, look at these other people. They're taking away our spotlight. They're casting out demons in your name, and so tell them to stop. And so what's, what's driving John's statement here? is not a passion for God's mission, but envy. He's concerned about someone else stealing the glory that should belong to the disciples alone because, hey, they're the inner circle of Jesus. And the danger would be is if this other group who are casting out demons in the name of Jesus 
would now take the spotlight away, actually take away the glory that should belong to the disciples alone. And Jesus makes a very profound statement here in verse 50. He says, Do not hinder him, that is the one who casts out demon in my name, for he who is not against you is for you. See, I think the disciples are thinking we are irreplaceable. No one can replace what we do. We are the close followers of Christ. We have heard it all. We've seen it all. We've done it all on His behalf. Remember, they've been sent out two by two to, to do these miracles and to, to teach with authority. They've fallen into the trap of thinking that they are irreplaceable in God's service. That, that we are the final... Uh, the the final remnant, right? Like Elijah, like there's nobody else left besides me. I'm the only faithful one left. And John's thinking, I see something that looks like good works over there, but hey, he's not following with us. He's not in our inner group here. And so there must not be anything good going on there. God can't use him, can he? And Jesus responds by saying, Yes, he can. Paul makes a similar argument in Philippians chapter 1. In verses 17 and 18, he says that some preach Christ out of wrong motives. But you know what Paul, how he concludes there? He says, but the main thing is, Christ is preached, and I'm thankful for that. Yes, Christ may be preached with wrong motives, but the truth of Christ is being preached, and God can still use that. So I would say to us that our job is to focus on our own task and to leave the rest to God. Our job is not to go around finding every group that doesn't follow Christ like we follow Christ or that doesn't follow Christ to the same uh, degree of energy and devotion that we follow Christ. And in so doing, we dismiss them and say that they're no good for the work of God. Instead, our job is to focus on what God has called us to do, our, our evangelism, our worship, our instruction, our discipleship with the people whom God has entrusted to us. Does this kind of envious power struggle ever show up in our church? I mean, what happens when someone gets a position in the church that we wanted or if someone gets chosen for a position that, frankly, we just don't like that person? What happens when we are surpassed by another person? What happens when a person who has been here for fewer years than us gets a position that we've been wanting? You see, following Christ means having a proper focus on God's mission and finding our place in that mission and not being envious like John of others who are seeking to follow God as well. God, they're, they may be following You, but, but they're not following You as closely as I am following You. And so tell them to stop. You know God's thinking? No. They are doing my mission. You focus on what you're supposed to do. If they're not opposed to You, then they are for me. Then they are for You really is, is how, the, how it's stated here in verse 50. 
so there's the application for our individual church. But I think perhaps a more direct application is the competition that exists among churches. In our circles, we tend to demonize every church that doesn't agree with us down the line doctrinally. We tend to demonize every church that doesn't agree with us. And yet, is it possible that there could be churches that we would never fellowship with? And rightfully so, because we think they're in disobedience. But, but is it possible that there are some churches that don't agree with us in every doctrinal area, but are orthodox in their overall doctrine, and yet they are not enemies of God? See, we tend to like the black and white. Like, we are the white. We know what the truth is. And we see someone else over there, and this church over here, they are not quite down the line. See, they believe something different when it comes to baptism. As an example, I don't agree with everything that Central Free Will Baptist Church teaches. And I don't think our church would ever come into fellowship with them because of the disagreements that we would have in some doctrinal areas. But could it be that God is actually saving people through the ministry of Central Free Will Baptist Church? Could it be that God is actually using those people? Could it be that they're actually pointing people to God? I don't agree with all the methodology of Woodside Bible. Right? And the campus churches that have sprung up around our area. But could it be that they are actually pointing people to God? Now, let me be clear, not every church that names the name of Christ is pointing people to God. I'm not suggesting that, hey, let's, let's just start uh, praising God for Catholics. You know, Obviously, when it comes to Catholicism, they are actually pointing people away from God. They're actually giving another gospel, which Paul says, let them be accursed. But I'm saying that what we tend to do is that we tend to broad brush all churches who disagree with us on any point, even if it's a small point that is, that is insignificant to the Gospel or very minimal when it comes to the Gospel. We tend to just label them as heretical, unbiblical, and leading people to hell when actually I think what could be happening in many of those churches is what's happening here. If they're not against you, then they are actually for you. And so our job is not to be envious of them and say, oh, they're taking away all these people. Instead, we need to recognize that, hey, God is using them and they are actually on our side. And we can pray for them. And we can encourage them. Certainly, we ought to challenge them in the ways that we disagree, but, but, but we tend to, to try to make things black and white when things aren't often that simple. And so instead of envy, we need a focused ministry. God, what have you called us to do as your disciples, so to speak? 
Could it be that these other people who name the name of Christ and who are actually leading people to God are on our side? It doesn't mean we go out and, and um, hold hands with them at the next rally. Okay? But, but what it does mean is that, that we should not demonize them either. Following Christ requires humility. It requires focused ministry. And then number three, following Christ requires mercy. Verses 51 to 56, it requires mercy. Here we have a transition in Luke's Gospel. The first part of the Gospel has focused on what I think is one of the key themes in the book. The overall theme is the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The first part of the Gospel through this, this verse here in verse 51 is the Son of Man has come to seek the lost. Now we're going to see this transition in, in chapter 9, verse 51. The Son of Man has come to save the lost. And now we're going to start to see the pathway of Jesus to Jerusalem. Notice the transition here in verse 51. When the days were approaching for His ascension, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew something that we already know and that is it was time for Him to go to Jerusalem to die. And now the, the whole tenor of the book is going to move toward that goal, that Jesus is going to head on toward Jerusalem. That doesn't mean He's making a beeline for it. He, we're going to find Him here in Bethany in chapter 10, but then back up in Galilee in chapter 17, and then back down in Jerusalem. So it's not a direct line. But the point is is that Jesus has now turned His focus to Jerusalem, that, that He's going to work on now this act of saving the lost. And so as he prepares to go to Jerusalem, he wants to prepare his followers to, to, um, to, to make sure that they understand what's going on here. And one of the things that he requires is that his followers actually go ahead of him and prepare his way. That they go ahead of him to cities and announce the coming of the Lord. Much like John the Baptist did at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. He said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Now Jesus is going to send His disciples ahead of Him to the various cities and He's going to tell them, "Okay, let them know that I'm coming. And that's what these verses are about. The first city He sends His messengers to is Samaria in verse 53, but they reject Him. They did not receive Him because He was traveling toward Jerusalem. They, they knew what His final goal was. And they recognized that the fact that He was traveling to Jerusalem was likely for worship. And of course, the Samaritans didn't believe that worship was to be done in Jerusalem, but rather in Samaria at Mount Gerizim. And so they didn't consider those who went to Jerusalem as taking part in true worship. And so, in general, the Samaritans were hostile toward traveling Jews to the point where, uh, according to, to, to many historians, they would refuse overnight lodging to Jews. And that's why you find that most, for the most part, the Jews wouldn't go through Samaria, right? They would go around. They would take the long way around Samaria, even though Samaria was most direct. And so when Jews would show up in Samaria, Samaritans would be surprised. What are you doing here? Notice verse 54, this continuing refrain. When His disciples James and John saw this, uh, that is, that, that the Samaritans were rejecting that Jesus come and stay with them, 
James and John saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Okay, again, we have this power struggle. The disciples, first, it's where am I going to be in the kingdom? What, what kind of position am I going to have? And then second, it was John here saying, listen, these people don't belong with us. They're taking our glory. And now he's saying, listen, why don't, why don't we call down, call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus rebukes them in verse 55. He turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. Essentially, Jesus is saying, listen, God is the avenger. He will repay, but not now. The disciples' ministry ought to have been one of mercy. They were not. Their job was not to bring about the vengeance. That's what we like to do. We like to say, well, when this person rejects us, we want to bring about revenge on them for rejecting God. But that's God's job. Okay? Our job is never to take revenge on the lost. That's God's job. We leave that up to Him. Our job is to continually show mercy to Him. Why? Because that's what happened to us. Aren't you thankful that the person who first gave you the Gospel didn't enact revenge or didn't have the power to act, enact revenge upon you? No, what they do, they were patient with you. They are persistent with you. They are merciful to you. And praise God, He used that to draw you to Himself. Okay, and that's the same responsibility we have. One of mercy. Following Christ requires humility. It requires a focused attention toward the mission, focused ministry. Thirdly, following Christ requires mercy. And then number four, following Christ requires full devotion. Full devotion, verses 57 through 62. Here, Jesus comes across three potential disciples, and each of them seems to be concerned about following Jesus. But... And here's the main point of the text. If they're going to follow Jesus, they must make following Jesus priority number one. You see three aspects of discipleship in these three potential followers. First, the cost of discipleship. Verses 57 and 58, the cost of discipleship. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Do you see this ambition, this desire to be about God's mission, to follow Jesus? What does Jesus say to them, to him? Listen, I often don't have a place to rest my head at night. So if you're going to be a follower of mine, you must recognize the cost of discipleship, that it may lead you to a path of discomfort and difficulty. It is going to require of you a dependence upon God that you have never experienced before because it is going to come with much rejection. The cost of discipleship. Second aspect we see is the priority of discipleship, verses 59 and 60. The priority of discipleship. This man comes. Jesus tells him to follow. And this man says, but first, at the end of verse 59, permit me to go and bury my father. Let me bury my father first. Now, there are several um, views based on what the scholars have, have looked at and have, have, have uh, come to a conclusion. Some scholars believe that this man's father had not died yet. And so this man 
you know, the father's kind of on his deathbed, or maybe over the next couple of years he's going to die, and the son is just kind of waiting around for his father to die. So let me bury my father. Let, let him die first before I come and follow you. And that could be the case. Other scholars believe that the father had been de- dead and buried, but the custom during that time was to, after a year of the burial, which the burial happened within the first 24 hours, After the burial, then they would take their bones, the rest of the body having decomposed, and put them in a separate container. So maybe he's waiting to do that. Let me bury my father, his final burial place. But there's no indication that his father is dead at all from this passage. Uh, uh, Or I'm sorry, that his father is still alive. He says, first, permit me to go and bury my father. The, the most natural reading of this text is that his father has just died within the past 24 hours. As I've mentioned before, they didn't have embalming, and so they had to bury these bodies rather quickly, as bodies de- decompose rather quickly without embalming. And so I think his father has just died within the last 24 hours, and It is the most urgent thing in this young man's life. That there is nothing more urgent for him than to bury his father. And with that in mind, that helps us to see the great weight that Jesus' words carry. Notice what he says, verse 60. If this is the case, that his father has just died. Jesus says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. The priority of discipleship is it takes precedent over the most urgent things in life. Burying your father, young man, is the greatest family obligation that any person has. But listen to this. What is even more important is following me dropping it all, and coming to follow me now. So no matter what you have to do, following Christ is priority number one. We are quick to make excuses for why we can't follow Christ. Now, we will then, when things clear up a little bit, when things are a little bit more stable in our family and in our finances and in our relationships, once I've established myself in my career, once I've established myself in retirement, then that's when I'm going to make following Christ number one. Jesus says, those things may be important, but nothing, nothing is more important than following me now. Making me number one now. The priority of discipleship. And then thirdly, the permanence of discipleship, verses 61 and 62. The third aspect that he wants us to see is the permanence of discipleship. And here, we have this man who says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, the farming illustration is you're not going to be able to to plow a straight line or a furrow while you're looking backwards. Maybe a more modern example is you can't stay on the road while your head is turned around looking out the back window. 
Any ladies can attest to that about their husbands, the way they drive? Okay. You can't drive. You can't stay within the lines if you have your head looking out the back window. So keep your eyes on the road. And here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, once you've decided to follow Me, you can't look back. Because looking back indicates that you never were a true disciple of Mine. Why do I say that? Notice what He says at the end of the verse. One who looks back is not fit for the kingdom. He actually says it a different way. He says, no one who looks back is fit for the kingdom. He's saying, he doesn't belong in the kingdom. He's not a true disciple of Mine. If after he makes a decision to follow Me, he turns back. God will not accept half-hearted discipleship. God is not looking for people who will make following Him a hobby in their life. He wants and He demands your complete devotion so that all of your life and all of my life is about discipleship. Christ here is calling for true disciples who will follow Him at any expense to the expense of anything else in life. We sing it this way, Lord, sever any tie. And we're talking about any tie that connects us to this world. Sever them. Cut them off. It doesn't matter. But, and here's how the rest of the phrase goes, accept the tie that binds me to your heart. Sever any tie. Accept the tie that binds me to your heart. So that means that we need to make a choice to follow Christ. And to follow Him with such resolve that even the winds of trouble and persecution cannot move us off the path toward the purposes of God. It also means something else. Think with me quickly. What are three things that you would like to improve about yourself? Three things that you'd like to improve about yourself. You got those in your mind? Did any of them have to do with God or your relationship with God? I have to tell you that when I thought through that exercise, the first things that popped into my mind were not immediately connected to my relationship with God. There are lots of things that I would like to improve in my life. Sometimes God gets put into second place. The Scriptures teach us that whatever we covet, those are our idols. The thing that we covet is our idol. And so we must guard ourselves against the rivals of God in our lives. In other words, against any God that you would usurp first place where God belongs. Those are our idols. Maybe it's a better image. Maybe it's more money. Maybe it's more recognition or better home life. It's not that we can't desire some of these things, but do you see that we can actually take things that are good by nature and put them in the place that God deserves alone, and in so doing, we have actually made them into idols in our lives. If we have desired those things apart from how God prescribed the means to which we would get them, we have turned even good things into idols. 
Maybe for us it's a concern over status, like we see here with the disciples. I think as a church, we especially need to guard our hearts because if all you think about is how you can get to a certain status, it's going to hinder your ability to reach people for Christ. It's going to hinder your ability to help out the lowly, the outcasts. I'm not talking about children because in our society it's not, it doesn't tend to be children, although they could be. I'm talking about people who are generally outcasts. Daryl Bach writes, people who spend time worrying about their rank spend little, if any time, thinking about how to serve people. Did you ever notice that? That when we tend to focus more on ourselves, we have little time and little effort to care about other people and what their needs are. And so we've moved from a place of grabbing the towel, getting on our knees and serving to a place of handing someone else the towel and saying, when are you going to serve me? Why are more people not serving me? You see, when you make following Christ your first priority, His priorities become your priorities. And then, when His priorities become your priorities, you care very little about whether you are recognized or seen by people. Because that's not what He came to do. He didn't come to be seen by people in a proud way. He came to serve and to give His life. And we, when we follow Christ in that way and make His priorities ours, we tend to care more about pleasing our Heavenly Father. We care less about being served and more about serving, even when people treat us with contempt. Has that ever happened to you? That you went to do an act of service towards somebody and they treated you with contempt? You're thinking, I'm here to serve you. Don't you recognize what I'm doing? But this is often what happens when we serve. But that's not the most important thing, how they treat us, is it? The most important thing is that we are following Christ, that we're pleasing our Father. Following Christ, friends, must be our first priority. And when it is, all these other things, your daily needs, all those other things that may be good and you want, all those other things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, burn these truths in our hearts. Help us to be people who are not envious of other people within this church and other churches who do not fall along the same lines as us completely, but who are orthodox overall and who do point people to Christ. Lord, help us to make it in our lives that following Christ is our first priority. Thank You, Jesus, for dying for us, for giving Yourself as a loving sacrifice, as an atonement for our sins. May we live our lives to please You and to honor Your name and Your death. Father, give us the strength to not just make a one-time decision to make following Christ our first priority because I believe that we've done that all at least once. But help us to continually make that choice that we are going to follow You with everything that we have and to to follow Christ to suffering because we know that finally will come glory. Lord, we don't wish suffering upon ourselves or anyone else, but 
we do recognize that it is a part of being a follower of Christ. And so may we accept it with glad submission. Recognize that You use it to strengthen us, to reveal our faith, and to make us more like Your Son, Jesus Christ, who suffered first and then enjoyed the glory of being in Your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.